Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll take you with on my visit to the new Disney 100 exhibit that just opened up on the northwest side of Chicago at a spot not too far away from where Walt Disney grew up. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me for our annual holiday theater preview. Later in the show, I'll catch up with acclaimed film score composer John Debney to talk about the 20th anniversary of an immensely popular holiday film that he scored. And we'll hear about an exhibit that shines a light on one of Chicago's largest ethnic populations. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. When you wish upon a star, make no difference who you are. Disney has come to Chicago to return home of sorts. The global entertainment conglomerate is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. One of the ways the House of Mouse is commemorating the milestone is with a traveling attraction titled Disney 100, The Exhibition. After debuting in Philadelphia and Berlin earlier this year, the exhibit has arrived in Chicago, a city with strong connections to the man who started it all, Walt Disney. Today marks a homecoming as the archive collection that forms the heart of this exhibition has roots right here in Chicago. It all began when the creative genius Walt Disney was born in the Hermosa neighborhood, just a few miles from where we stand today. That was Lisa Deacon, Vice President of Business Development for World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency that was instrumental in bringing the exhibit to Chicago. She was among the speakers at a ribbon-cutting ceremony to unveil the giant exhibit that fills the 35,000-square-foot Exhibition Hub Art Center in the city's Bucktown neighborhood. The attraction, which opened to the public this weekend, sits less than four miles from the house where Walt Disney was born. Our ties to the Windy City tread deep, going all the way back to 1890, when Walt's parents, Elias and Flora, along with their first son, Herbert, moved here from Florida. This is Disney archivist Kevin Kern. Working as a carpenter, Elias relocated his growing family here to the beautiful city by the lake in anticipation of work outfitting the Columbian Exhibition of 1893. Now, Elias would later build houses that he and Flora designed, including one in the Hermosa neighborhood, where our company founder and namesake Walt Disney was born. That house at 2156 North Trip Avenue is still there. After years of neglect, new owners are working with the city in the hopes of restoring it to its 1901 state. Curtin says a big part of Walt Disney's formative years were spent in Chicago. The Disney storybook really opens here. Now, after moving to the small town of Marceline, Missouri in 1906, the Disney family returned to Chicago in 1917, with more memories to come for an impressionable young Walt. It was here that he purchased his first motion picture camera and began creating home movies. He attended McKinley High School and enrolled in night classes at the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts which further introduced him to the trappings and toils of working as a professional artist, something he would pursue until moving to Hollywood in 1923. From there, after forming the Disney Brothers cartoon studio with his brother Roy, Disney's would end up revolutionizing the worlds of animation, 
filmmaking, and themed entertainment forever. Now, these are only a few of the connections between the many worlds of Disney and the great city of Chicago that exist. Examples all that are historic, important, and worthy of celebrating. Some of those Chicago connections are included in the exhibit. More on that in a bit. Walt Disney once said, I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a mouse. This is Matthew Adams, Walt Disney Archives manager for exhibitions. We all know that Walt was just being modest. It started long before Mickey Mouse whistled himself into our hearts. It started on October 16th, 1923, when a brilliant young man signed a contract to produce a series of silent cartoons. So to share the story of the Walt Disney Company since then, we've gone back to our roots and took a look at how Walt created his own special magic and how the philosophies that he developed in his time still inform every single thing that we do at the Walt Disney Company. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I recently visited the new Disney 100 exhibit before it opened to the public. Now the exhibit, which is really the size of a medium-sized museum, is divided into 10 different sections, each focusing on a different aspect of Walt Disney's vision. Though the first section, titled Where It All Began, is more biographical, it provides some info on Walt's early days. It pays homage to his Chicago roots with a series of photos, though you would think there would be a bigger emphasis on the local connection given the time Disney spent here and the fact that the exhibit is in Chicago. Other highlights from the exhibit include a section titled Where Do the Stories Come From? There, visitors will learn about the things that inspired Walt and the other creatives who have followed in his footsteps to make some of the company's most iconic films. One of the most interesting sections is titled Innoventions. Visitors can get a sense of the innovations Disney's Imagineers have developed over the years, many of which created new precedents in film and others that push boundaries at the company's popular theme parks. Another favorite is the section titled The Magic of Sound and Music. It serves as a reminder of just how influential the music that's appeared in Disney's films is. During my visit, I caught up with Adams to talk about his approach to curating an exhibit that's meant to celebrate 100 years of pop culture. It was really hard to kind of narrow things down and determine like what to select to feature in this. And ultimately what we landed on is that the exhibition is not um, in chronological order. The only thing that's in chronological order is the first gallery, where we really tell the story of Walt Disney's birth here in Chicago and, and basically the foundation of the company up until present day. But everything else, in terms of the where we start, in terms of selecting assets, everything is in service to the themes of the gallery, which are all based on the philosophies of Walt Disney. So that's the overarching story that we wanted to tell. And so everything that we've selected to feature here is in service to those philosophies and tells that story. Um, there's so much to pick from. It's, it was almost an impossible task to narrow everything down to figure out what to include. There is that obvious Disney connection with Chicago because Walt was born here and spent some of his childhood. Did you do any research here in Chicago? Well, we are very well connected with the Walt Disney birthplace, the, the home, which is you can still visit um, and see some uh, some cool history there. So all of, but everything else took place in either LA, which is where the archives is based, um, and our partners, Simmel and Studio TK, who were the designers of the exhibition, they're based in Berlin. And so we're working across numerous time zones for about four years working with them on this. But all the research and everything was pretty much done in LA where um, studio is based. 
I know the exhibit was in Philly and now it's here and there's some other cities. What were the logistical challenges? One of the issues is that it's it's so big. You know, we need about 20,000 square feet for the exhibition and for the gift shop and everything. Uh, and so, and there's so many different moving pieces to this. You know, not only are we have the exhibition walls and all the scenic elements, but all the individual assets themselves, they're historical assets. And so, um, you know, we have to make sure that everything is created very appropriately and that we have climate control and the right, you know, temperature and humidity conditions. So there's so many things that factor into deciding where we can go. Um, not as aside from just space, there's also all the environmental conditions that we have to um, think of. But also we really want to focus on locations where there isn't a strong Disney presence already. You know, obviously we have a big presence in LA, we have a big presence in Orlando, but there's Disney affinity all over the country and you know, a lot of people maybe can't make it to the parks in Orlando. So we're looking for ways to bring Disney experiences to those markets where people are craving those Disney experiences but maybe aren't able to make it to the parks. One of the things Adams is hoping visitors take away is a deeper understanding of the company's founder. That's a great question. I think one thing for sure is that I think a lot of younger audiences maybe aren't as familiar with Walt Disney, the man himself. And so we want to make sure that his legacy is preserved and that people know that he's not just a name like, you know, Colonel Sanders or something like that. He was a real person and this company wouldn't exist without him. So we want people to know who Walt Disney was, why he was important, but also we just want people to really lean into the nostalgia and the memories, the fond memories that they have of Disney because Disney has left such an indelible mark on all of our lives and a culture at large in a way that I don't think many other companies have. Um, so we just, it's really kind of a love letter to our fans. Disney 100, the exhibition, opened Saturday, November 18th. No official close date has been announced. It's expected to be on display through most of January. Right now, you can still buy tickets up until January 28th, but that date could be extended. You can find more info at Disney100Exhibit.com. That's Disney, the numerals 100Exhibit.com. We'll come to you if your heart is in your dream. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section every Sunday on 90.9 or 90.7 FM, thank you. But also make sure to check out the show's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features you can listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Also, if you ever have a question, suggestion, or comment, please reach out. You can reach me at gzydic at wdcb.org. Or find me on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, with the handle at OnAirGary. Happy Holiday! Happy Holiday! While the merry bells keep ringing, may your every wish come true. Happy holidays. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm joined now by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. 
Happy, happy almost Thanksgiving yeah. to our listeners. All right. Happy Thanksgiving to the both of you. It's time for our annual holiday theater preview. This is always an important time of the year for theater companies and presenters. Holiday ticket sales can make a big difference in an organization's bottom line. There's some data and anecdotal pieces out there that indicate audiences haven't returned in as large of numbers post-pandemic as some might have hoped, which to me signals that these next six weeks are going to be pretty important for local theater organizations. What are the two of you hearing? Well, I think that you're absolutely right, Gary. I mean, and, and not just in theater, but also dance. Most dance companies, certainly classical ballet companies, would tell you that the, a large bulk of their earned income from ticket sales comes from an annual production of The Nutcracker. So cash cows, though they be, we absolutely need uh, they, they need that milk right now. <laughs> so, Indeed. And, you know, this is what I always call the sugar plums and treacle season. And it runs from now at least through December 31st and and a little bit beyond. And by my count, there are uh, about 40 theater productions, holiday, specifically holiday theater productions. Uh, So they're popping up all over the place from uh, from the far south and far west suburbs to the north suburbs to theaters in Chicago. And that's more than there were last year. And this doesn't count most of the dance versions of uh, of the Nutcracker. It doesn't count, you know, things that are popping up for three days or special concert events like the Auditorium Theater downtown has a whole series of one-off, one-night holiday events. So my count of 40 doesn't include those. You include those, and there are probably more than 60 different specifically holiday shows. So the uh, performing arts are really going whole hog this year (laughs) in an effort to generate some cash and perhaps regenerate those missing pieces of audiences carrying forward into 2024. Very important time of year indeed. So let's dive into some of your picks. We've divided the preview into three categories, new works, returning favorites, and then uh, everything else in a a potpourri category. And uh, let's start with the the new ones. And one production that's on both of your lists is the Muppet-filled Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Well, you know, as somebody who grew up, you know, I was one of the first Sesame Street audience kids, I think. You know, I was of that age and loved the Muppet shows. Emmett Otter is one of those things that, you know, was kind of almost a cult classic for a while. It started out as a, a Jim Henson 77, 1977 holiday special based on the children's book by the uh, great Russell Hoban of the same title. And Emmett Otter involves a poor family of, well, otters who are trying to make the season bright despite some of their difficulties. Uh, it features songs by the great Paul Williams, who wrote Rainbow Connection for the first Muppet movie and has written so many other hits that we could fill up the rest of our time today talking about those. But he wrote the score for this. It features original Muppet creations by the Jim Henson Creature Shop. I have to say, the inner child in me is pretty stoked about seeing this one. Um, it's running through December 31st at the Studebaker, and I think the Studebaker could use you know, a good holiday hit right downtown. It makes sense to me that they've they've picked this up. Whether it becomes, uh, you know, an enduring returning thing here in Chicago, we don't know. But I think it's uh, a really interesting, family-friendly, larger-scale show to bring into the mix this year. I would agree with that. This is uh, also the show is 
new to Chicago, as we say, hasn't been done before. And the, the Studebaker, which is down, uh, you know, near uh, on Michigan Avenue in the old Fine Arts Building, which was uh, what celebrated what 125 years of history yes. this year, is a beautifully refurbished uh, about 900 or 1,000 seat theater. So it's a good place to see a show, indeed. Okay. And uh, that runs through uh, through December 30th. Right. So if you're right. shopping and going down and having, you know, lunch with, with your family, you can maybe also combine it with a with a, uh, a time out at the, at the Evan Otter's Jug Band Christmas. And as the name sure, implies, sure. I'm assuming the score will be, you know, a very country and uh, bluegrass-inflected uh, kind, of, kind of event. So... One of the other new shows is uh, definitely not family-friendly. I would say it's for adults, and that is Sleeping with Beauty at Pride Arts Center, uh, running currently through December 17th. Now, this will be the second year in a row, or maybe even the third year in a row, that Pride Arts, for their Christmas show, has presented a version, an adults-only version, of a traditional British holiday season pantomime, as they call them, but they are not silent. They have songs, they have talk, they have lots of corny jokes, they have a little bit of audience participation, and uh, the real deal, they are family-friendly and designed for children over in the UK, but this one, <laughs> Sleeping with Beauty, I think is an adult version of a pantomime. Uh, the one I saw last year was, was a lot of fun, and highly risque, and I expect Sleeping With Beauty will be also at Pride Arts through December 17th. And then I have one that seems like it might be a little on the naughty side, but it's actually quite sweet. Um, this is Wise Guys, The First Christmas Story, which is a world premiere at Factory Theater in Rogers Park. It's such a great idea, I'm surprised nobody has come up with it before. Let's take the story of the, the, the Magi, the three wise men, and treat it as like a buddy road film or buddy road adventure. So you have the three trying to get to Bethlehem. It, as is the case with these sorts of narratives, they fall out, they fight, they have to come together to overcome a host of misadventures along the way. If you know Factory, you know that they kind of do this sort of pop culture snarky style. But one thing I've always appreciated about them over the years is there's also sort of an earnest sweetness underneath it all. And I think that's really well served here in this brand new play by Chase Wheaton Whirl, a large ensemble. Um, they reference things like Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. And, uh, you know, when we finally do meet Mary, she's she's sort of a, you know, a downtrodden, very tired <laughs> new mom, which to me makes a lot of sense. So this is one that I have a feeling may be returning in future years. But um, if you have any reason to be up in Rogers Park and are looking for a holiday show that you haven't seen before, Wise Guys, the first Christmas story, it's only running through December 16th, so you may want to get on it fairly soon if you're thinking of going, because it's a small space. This also is a world premiere, uh, and with all the repeated uh, annual popular hits, uh, world premiere is kind of a, is kind of unusual. So, Wise Guys, the first Christmas story. One thing that is not a world premiere, but I still have it on my new list, is Christmas with Elvis being presented at the Chopin Theater down in Bucktown uh, on Division at uh, Milwaukee. Christmas with Elvis, uh, running <laughs> December, November 24th through January 7th of next year. And the reasons on the list is because 
This is a play that was done in Chicago about 30 or 31 years ago and has not been restaged since. So it's, for all practical purposes, it's a new play. You know, I'm the only one who is alive now who is still alive <laughs> then, is... or so it seems sometimes. <laughs> it's about uh, a, a, a woman going through a divorce who is carried through the difficulties and the Christmas seasons by her connection with the music of the King, Elvis Presley, and uh, it's described as a dramedy, partly drama, but perhaps mostly comedy. Uh, it's just a two-character show, and it sounds like an intriguing new entrant in the category, Christmas with Elvis at the Chopin Theater, and it's directed by a very notable and able director who is... Um, we don't see much around anymore, and that's Dexter Ballard, and he always does interesting work. The other show that I'd like to mention is, it's, it is a short run, but it's Christmas with C.S. Lewis. Now, not much to con, you know to con, uh, connect C.S. Lewis and Elvis, although I think they both work with different kinds of uh, fantasy. Um, in this particular play, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia recounts his conversion to faith with the help of uh, another great fantasy writer, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, the premise is that the Oxford Don and writer is hosting a group of touring Americans over the holidays where his yuletide recollections illustrate his faith in the season and his newfound Christian beliefs. Runs at the Broadway Playhouse December 5th through the 10th, so that might be a little bit more of a heady option for people who are, uh, you know, wanting something that's a bit more literary or, you know, a bit more theologically based. But it's a short run, and again, right downtown at the, Bro or, you know, in North Michigan at the Broadway Playhouse. And perhaps a final uh, new play, uh, new show, Christmas show choice. It's not a new story. It's very, very familiar. And that's Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. But this is a live stage musical version uh big production at the cadillac palace theater for a relatively short two-week run december 19th to december 31st i think everybody knows the story of how the grinch stole christmas and uh, probably has seen the television special from which this stage version is uh, is adapted so it's familiar territory but it's a new and new as a live theatrical production for Chicago's holiday season. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm here with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. We're talking about holiday productions. Uh, let's turn to some of our holiday theater traditions that are back this season. There are two that stand out in my mind for the longevity. Goodman's uh, A Christmas Carol and American Blues Theater's it's a Wonderful Life live radio show. These these seem to have uh, like 20-year histories each. I don't know. I don't, the Goodman Theater, the Christmas Carol might even oh, go yeah. back further. Um, oh, yeah. Like, I think it's just 16 years now at Christmas Carol just with Larry Yando as Scrooge. And he, he is a wonderful Scrooge, so if you've never seen him, you know, avail yourself of that opportunity. The Goodman Theater production is by far, it is not the only version of A Christmas Carol, but it's like the mother of all Christmas carols. <laughs> and there's also, I think, productions at Metropolis Performing Arts Center in Arlington Heights. Jury Lane in Oak Brook Terrace has a children's version they've been running every year. So yeah, I think if you just Google Christmas Carol Chicago, you should be able to find plenty of options. Now, I'm particularly excited about It's a Wonderful Life this year because this is the first time that American Blues, and you are correct, uh, Gary, they've been producing this well over 20 years. Um, they are opening their new space on North Lincoln Avenue with this year's production, which to me feels like a, a very solicitous kind of uh, 
you know, blending of, of their real story with this uh, 1940s style radio presentation of the story by uh, based on the beloved film by Frank Capra. It always comes with uh, Christmas carols and radiograms. People in the audience, you can write little love notes to people you might be at the show with, and they will, you know, read those out from the stage. Uh, jingles for local businesses. I've always found it a very charming and endearing production, and I'm very happy, particularly this year, that American Blues has, you know, come out of all the travails that all theaters have had in the last few years to open their brand new space. Right. This is their first permanent home of their own, so it represents a big investment both of cash and time. It is at 5627 North Lincoln Avenue, an area where you can actually still find street parking. You know, that's really <laughs> nice. Uh, it's a God bless life. us, everyone. <laughs> yeah. God bless us, everyone. Right. It's a wonderful life, alive. Uh, opens on December 8th and runs through December 31st. One of my other favorites is The Other Cinderella at Black Ensemble Ooh. Theater. This is the show that, uh, that the founder and, and head of Black Ensemble, Ms. Jackie Taylor, created. And it's a version, as the name suggests, of the Cinderella fairy tale, but set in the projects, the housing projects of Chicago. And uh, Black Ensemble has done it almost every year for 47 years, I mean, not, the shutdown notwithstanding. And it is now running at the Black Ensemble Theater's lovely home in Uptown on Clark Street, uh, running through December 31st. And one that's uh, a little bit more um, in keeping with sort of uh, cultural sensitivity, we have Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins. This is a show that Straw Dog has done, I think this is maybe their sixth year? I don't know. They've done it several years now. It's based on the Eric Kimmel book about the cunning Herschel of Ostropol, who must save Hanukkah from the grip of the title tricksters who have taken over the synagogue. Uh, this year, they're performing, uh, Straw Dog is performing it in partnership with the Chicago Loop Synagogue, so it will be performed downtown. They're running at that location November 30th to December 23rd. I've seen this show a couple of times. Utterly charming. Um, not, you know, just the right length. I think it's maybe 70 minutes, if even that. Um, lots of lovely costumes, mask work, a uh, little bit of music. Um, if you're So if you're looking for something that's away from the, you know, sort of uh, <laughs> dominant Christian ideology or, you know, celebrations of the, of the season, then uh, Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins might be just the thing to look for. Right, and it's worth mentioning that this is not only family-friendly, but it is friendly for really the, the fairly young ones. I think right. three-year-olds can go to this one. You're right, it runs 65 or 70 minutes, and uh, if they're repeating what they've done in past years, there'll be somebody blowing up and making balloon animals, and there'll be kind of uh, mild interactive participation yeah. to keep the children interested. And as you mentioned, it's at the Chicago Loop Synagogue this year, which is at 16 South Clark Street in Chicago. Uh, one other returning favorite also suitable for very young children, uh, maybe even uh, two and a half, two, certainly three, is the Beatrix Potter Holiday Tea Party at Chicago Children's Theater in the West Loop area, uh, now running through December 31st. And this is, you know, Beatrix Potter was the British writer who gave us uh, Peter Rabbit and uh, other uh, uh, very popular children's characters. 
And this is a like a one-hour holiday party where they serve uh, not tea to the little ones, but I believe hot chocolate. And uh, it's audience interactive and will bring out some of the familiar Beatrix Potter characters. And I believe that Chicago Children's Theater is doing at least two matinee performances uh, a day during yeah. the holiday season, certainly on weekends. Um, uh, including late morning and early afternoon. So there are a number of suitable times. The Beatrix Potter Holiday Tea Party at Chicago Children's Theater through December 31st. And then the last one I have for this category, it's technically a new show, but it feels pretty returning to me. Helena Handbag uh, is bringing back their long-running parody <laughs> franchise, uh, The Golden Girls, The Lost Episodes. They've done holiday versions before. This year in The Golden Girls Save Xmas, Dorothy, Sophia, Blanche, and Rose accidentally incapacitate a visitor named Nick on Christmas Eve, and they have to concoct a way to get the children of the world all their toys. Please do not be confused. This is not a children's <laughs> show in any way. Uh, the Hell in a Handbag you know, it has a sort of gleefully naughty camp aesthetic that comes out with this, but it's also a very loving tribute, and they've been doing these for a number of years now, to these women of a certain age and, and their desires and their friendship. This one's running at the Hoover Leppin Center at the Center on Halstead, and that's uh, November 25th to December 30th. And I have one final uh, returning favorite, um, a new production of a familiar show, at least for some of us, but has not been seen here in a few, <laughs> few years, and that is The Christmas Schooner. The beautiful, heartfelt musical uh, story of what used to be a genuine piece of Chicago history, how schooners came down Lake Michigan each November, early December, bringing uh, northern Wisconsin and Michigan Christmas trees to sell to Chicago. And it was an annual tradition until the year that the Christmas schooner was lost in a storm. And this is a, as I say, a, a bittersweet but lovely family uh, 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 Christmas season, holiday season piece. Not for tiny, tiny kids, not like Beatrix Potter. This is for more mature, older kids, probably six, seven on up, and families. And it's being done, as far as I know, this is a new production of the Christmas Schooner. It's being done in far south suburbs at the Beverly Arts Center. That's actually not a suburb. That's still, I think, part of yeah. Chicago. The Beverly Arts Center running December 14th to the 23rd, so a relatively short one run of a sweetheart of a show. So if you live down in that area, yeah. the Christmas Schooner would be a good choice. That's a lovely, lovely show. Thank you for choosing that one. Before we uh, move on to our next category, I just wanted to kind of bring it back to what we started with, our, our earlier comments. One production that was becoming a holiday tradition, uh, Looking Glass Theater's The Steadfast Tin Soldier, won't be performed this year, kind of going back to what we were talking about, because right. Looking Glass announced <laughs> earlier this year that it was going to pause operations for the remainder of the year. So just a reminder that uh, theater companies are struggling in this post-pandemic reality and Looking Glass Theater would be an example of that. Um, yeah. And now let's move on to our uh, miscellaneous category. Carrie, what's, what did you put in this bag? Well, there's one that I'm pretty excited about, mostly because if you were to ask me what my favorite holiday movie is, I will always answer The Apartment, Billy Wilder's classic 1960 movie, which predates Mad Men, but is all about the sexist world of New York business in the era. era. 
Uh, a low-level insurance company employee, Chuck Baxter, is currying favor with his bosses by loaning out his apartment for their extramarital trysts. And then the woman he secretly loves, and a charming elevator operator named Fran Kublik, who has been secretly dating the big boss, tries to take her own life when Christmas Eve at his home after a date gone awry. Sounds like a happy holiday film. <laughs> but it's actually a, a very sweet story in many ways about a man who is asked, because of love, to, at the holiday season, to re-examine his ideas of success, his ideas of relationships, his ideas of how to be, as his neighbor tells him, a mensch. Um, this film was turned into the 1960s musical Promises, Promises, with a book by Neil Simon, <clears throat> and a score, of course, by the great Burt Bacharach and Hal David, which includes I'll Never Fall in Love Again and the title song. It is getting a revival just in time for the holidays with Blank Theater Company. It'll be at the Greenhouse Theater Center uh, December 1st to the 30th, and um, I'm just very excited that somebody had the good idea to bring this in as a holiday offering. <laughs> Well, indeed, it's not uh, it's not a show I would consider, uh, you know, uh, by by the title and by the story as a as holiday oh. fair, but there it is. You know? Yes, and there's that big Christmas office party number, Turkey yeah. Lurkey time, which is absolutely one of the most bonkers right. thing you will ever see in a musical. Okay. I am convinced. Yeah. <laughs> there are several similar shows, uh, not similar in story, but uh, shows that are set at Christmas time that are not specifically. Christmas stories or holiday season stories. And my favorite was also a originally a wonderful movie, The Shop Around the Corner, starring Jimmy Stewart from 1940, mm -hmm. directed by the great master Ernst Lubitsch. And it became, in the early 60s, the delightful, enchanting, sweetheart musical She Loves Me, written by the same team that went on to write Fiddler on the Roof, so it's a good team. And she loves me about the the two clerks in a in a in a leather goods and perfume store at Christmas time in 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 Hungary uh, in the 1930s, and they fight with each other all the time. But privately, they are each in love with a secret correspondent, which turns out to be the two of them. <laughs> she loves me is being done this season by the Citadel Theater. Uh, up in the North Shore suburbs. It is running currently, runs through December 17th. And it just is such a sweet and delightful show with a wonderful score and, uh, and, and a happy ending. So it's my other pick. And I also have a Citadel show, though it's, it's more children's-oriented. Um, from December 20th to the 31st, they're running Eleanor's Very Merry Christmas Wish, which had its premiere in 2019, hasn't been seen locally since because there was this little thing called the pandemic. This show is created by a longtime Chicago cabaret producer, Denise McGowan-Tracy. She used to produce Monday nights at Petarino's. Um, and it's a lovely little tale about a poor little rag doll who has never found a home outside Santa's workshop and just searching for a child to love her. Yes, is it the season of, you know, mistletoe and treacle, as you said, Jonathan? Sugar plums. Sure, Sugar but I think that this is a show that really does talk about the fact that, you know, for, in a way that kids can understand without it being too heavy, that, you know, sometimes people feel a little lonely at the holidays. Sometimes the things you think you're looking for are not the things you're going to get, but maybe, you you know, if you try sometimes, you get what you need. No, it's not a score by the Rolling Stones, but it's a, it's a really sweet holiday show, and if you're already going to be up in Lake Forest, you might want to also put this one on your on your uh, your wish list. Eleanor's very merry Christmas wish. Okay, 
So the shows that we have gone through is only a partial sampling. And as we sometimes do, if you want to see everything that's available <laughs> and get ticket and time and performance details, we urge you to go to the website of the League of Chicago Theaters, chicagoplays.com. And Jonathan, I think you'd also agree with me that it's also nice at this time of year to support your local arts groups and to think about perhaps giving gift certificates or tickets or season subscriptions or something of that nature as part of your holiday gift-giving schemes. The, the people you love will love it. The theaters will love it. It's a win-win proposition. <laughs> Do you think there's more productions of A Christmas Carol or The Nutcracker? Oh, my gosh. I haven't done the count, but it would be, you know, it, it, it would be a close question, as they say. <laughs> Lots to see. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, you're welcome. Carrie. And happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Happy Thanksgiving to you, and we'll talk to you next week. You're tuned into the arts section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. The local Polish community is the focus of a new exhibit at the Chicago History Museum. Back Home, Polish Chicago features over 90 artifacts and more than 100 photos, all part of a comprehensive look at one of the city's largest ethnic communities. An estimated 1.9 million Polish Americans call the Chicago metro area home. Some have even said outside of Warsaw, Chicago is the largest Polish city in the world. That's not exactly true, but there's no denying the influence Polish immigrants have had on the area. It's definitely to say Chicago is the second largest Polish city outside of Warsaw. It might not be statistically accurate. However, it does speak to the fact that Chicago has historically, going back to the you know late 19th century, had a large Polish population and up to, you know, including to our own time. This is the Chicago History Museum's Peter Alter. He curated Back Home, Polish Chicago. I caught up with Alter after checking out the exhibit for myself. He says the idea for the exhibition was born almost a decade ago. So this uh, exhibition project actually started eight years ago this past spring with a conversation at a conference at Loyola University Chicago where the leadership of Chicago History Museum and the leadership of the Polish History Museum in Warsaw met. And the Polish History Museum in Warsaw proposed some kind of collaborative project uh, that would include both museums. Uh, and so uh, from there it developed into an oral history project, international exchange of youth um, from both cities doing interviews over there and over here and then eventually this exhibition. And so is there an exhibition over? Uh, the plan would be uh, for this, so we know this exhibition will be open for roughly a year. It will close in uh, June of 2024, and then it will, components of it will likely get packed up and go to the Polish History Museum in Warsaw. So the Polish History Museum is actually currently under construction on the Citadel and will be the first national history museum in the history of Poland and will be the largest single museum building in the country. While the inception of the exhibit was back in 2015, it took a few years before the project really started to come together. The oral history project was in 2018 and 2019, uh, and then I got busy on working on a different exhibition, uh, and then the start of the pandemic. So we've been working on developing both the storyline and borrowing artifacts, images, documents, uh, and developing other aspects of the exhibition 
for about the last 18 to 24 months, like almost full time, like 100% of my time. And in these galleries, almost all of the artifacts that you see on display and most of the photographs that are reproduced are borrowed from uh, Chicagoland's Polish residents. So we do have some materials in our collections, but we're able to tell these first-person stories with the oral histories and borrowing, you know, artifacts from Polish Chicagoans. Back home, Polish Chicago is divided into three parts, journeys, neighborhoods, and connections. The journey section highlights the immigration of people from the Pole lands that began in the 1830s. Obviously, Chicago became a landing spot for a number of immigrant populations. What do we know now about why so many Polish immigrants ended up in Chicago? Yes, uh, that's a great question. So initially, when we're thinking about like 1800s to early 1900s, the start of World War I, uh, that's the forebred immigration uh, from the Polish lands when Poland didn't exist. And a lot of folks came here, you know, if Listeners have ever read, of course, Upton Sinclair's classic novel, The Jungle. While the protagonist is Lithuanian, uh, there are a lot of Polish characters. And, you know, they're working and living, you know, in back of the yards and Bridgeport and on the north side as well in the Polish downtown area. And a lot of folks came here because in that earliest era because they um, were looking for jobs for bread. And they were able to come here because finally railroad and steamship lines were close enough to them that they could actually come here. But our exhibition does tell more than the story of those earliest immigrants. Uh, there's a post-World War II era of displaced persons. So they're fleeing you know, the aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust. There's the solidarity era immigration. A lot of folks are either fleeing a bad economy or political persecution. Uh, and then the post-communist or post-solidarity era when folks, again, are coming to Chicago to look for jobs. And that, and that ends really in the early 2000s when Poland joins the European Union and it's easier to go to places like Ireland or the UK when the UK was still part of of the European Union. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with Chicago History Museum curator Peter Alter about the institution's exhibit, Back Home, Polish Chicago. Those first waves of Polish immigrants settled into different parts of the city, establishing several Polish patches. Basically, north side, uh, south side, and to some extent, uh, west side. So west side would be more like Pilsen Little Village and uh, Cicero, the west, near western suburb, but also back of the yards, Bridgeport, um, lower west side, and uh, West Town, which, which was more the uh, what's known as Polish downtown. Uh, so think of Ashland Division and Milwaukee, right near the Polish Museum of America, which is one of our collaborators on this project. I've seen that museum just walking through the, the neighborhood, and it never really had occurred to me until recently that that must have been a, a hub for a wave of Polish immigrants. Yes, uh, so the museum is in uh, is in the building, uh, the beautiful building of the Polish Roman Catholic Union of America, which is the oldest uh, Polish organization in the U.S. So they eventually took up residence there as an offshoot of the PRCUA. 
And then later on in the exhibit, there is kind of a population map of from, I think, 2012 to 2016. That's right. So we see some disbursement, but still a, a pretty large Polish population here in the city of Chicago. Uh, we do see disbursement. Um, there is, to some extent, uh, still a Polish, uh, po- Polish population in Chicago. Uh, but of the region, Chicagoland, the split is about 80, 80% suburban and 20% urban. So people have, have left the city. Uh, and then more recent areas of immigration, rather than coming to a city neighborhood and eventually going to the suburbs, more recent Polish immigrants often move straight to the suburbs. As we've discussed, so there are these uh, common threads among all immigrant communities that, that have come to America, that have come to Chicago. What are some unique aspects to the the Polish community here in Chicago? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So I think um, one of the chief unique aspects would be something we've already talked about, just the sheer size. Uh, And I think also um, in terms of especially European immigrant groups that while many of us know that there's an, an 1800s and early 1900s era of immigration, that uh, Polish immigrants and Polish refugees, displaced persons, were coming to Chicago for nearly the entire 20th century and into the very early 21st century. So that um, Polish immigration was dynamic and ongoing for much of the 1900s. That's Peter Alter. He's the curator of the Chicago History Museum's Back Home, Polish Chicago, The exhibit will be on display until June 4th, 2024. You can find more information at chicagohistory.org. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to The Arts Section. Every year around this time, a slew of new holiday movies are released. A lot of them come and go, leaving little impression on their audiences. But a handful of holiday movies end up connecting with people, and their annual viewings become holiday traditions. The John Favreau-directed Will Ferrell-starring film Elf has joined that club of Christmas classics. Wow! This is the North Pole. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Where's the snow? Why are you smiling like that? I just like to smile. Smiling's my favorite. Make work your favorite. That's your favorite, okay? Okay. Work is your new favorite. Fine. It's hard to believe, but Elf was released in theaters 20 years ago. The story of Buddy, a human who was raised as an elf in the North Pole, and his decision to find his real dad in New York City has seemingly grown in popularity since the film's initial release in 2003. Time for the announcement. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. Warner Brothers is celebrating the milestone anniversary with a nationwide tour of Elf in Concert, where an orchestra performs the film's score live as it's being shown on screen. There are two ELF performances scheduled for the Chicago area. The first is Saturday, November 25th at the Auditorium Theater in Chicago. 
The second is the next night at the Rosemont Theater in Rosemont. I recently caught up with the person responsible for crafting Elf's score, composer John Debney, to talk about his approach to making the melodies used in the film and to get his thoughts on the movie's enduring popularity. Debney has composed scores to hundreds of films and TV projects over the course of a 40-plus year career. I graduated from college in 2003, and I remember going to see Elf that year, later that year, and I can't believe it's been 20 years already, so that makes me feel old, but uh, a great memory. (laughs) When you think back, what do you remember about the beginning of your involvement with what turned into Elf? You know, Gary, it it doesn't seem like 20 years for me either, i got to be honest with you. It, you know, my... Coming to the project was just sort of one of those, you know, calls from the agent. They were looking for a composer, and so I put some music together. And lo and behold, I got a meeting with John Favreau, who I hadn't met before. And John Favreau, if you remember, um, had just come off a couple of good movies, but very small sort of indie movies, Swingers being, being, you know, my favorite. Yeah, And so... I, you know, I knew of John as an actor also. He'd done, he'd been in a couple movies that I had scored. So I was familiar with him and his work. So we just had a, a meeting or two, I, as I recall, and I think it was sort of a leap of faith for John, you know, that he hadn't done, to my knowledge, he hadn't done a big studio movie yet. You know, we sort of jumped into this thing. He asked me to do it. And interestingly enough, I jumped into Elf, not knowing much about it, uh, the budget was um, wasn't a big, big movie. I mean, they certainly had enough budget to do a, a very nice score, but you know, nobody really knew what it was. So I just jumped in blindly and started writing music, and and there you go. And Twenty years later, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> For my listeners that maybe aren't familiar. When you're brought on to, to compose a score for a film, do you sit down and watch the, the rough cut and then start thinking about the music from there, or are you already coming to the project with musical ideas? That's a great question. Um, usually it, it is just that. I'll, I'll sit with the director and watch a rough cut and then just start to you know think about it. Usually the first two weeks for me are sitting at the piano and coming up with some ideas, you know, some rough melodies and such. And that's what I did. And, um, you know, I remember fooling around with a few melodies, and then shortly thereafter, after watching the film, maybe a week or two goes by, and then I remember playing a couple of these melodies for John Favreau, and luckily he uh, liked what I was doing and ultimately loved the, the main thing that I came up with. So it's just sort of trial and error be honest with you, Gary and and your listeners, it's, uh, you know, playing one note after the other and trying to come up with something. I knew I I wanted to come up with something Christmassy, you know, that's what came out. And so you've scored a number of holiday films in your career, not just Christmas, all sorts of holiday films. When it comes to... You know, it's a dubious distinction, isn't it? Somebody brought that up to me recently, that I've done just about everybody, every holiday film one can imagine, and kind of really grateful for that. I've done a Halloween one, I've done Mother's Day, so it's it's really fun. I I don't know why, but it's been really wonderful to do that. Yeah, 
But when it comes to, to Christmas movies, I would imagine for each project, there's like a, a different approach. But do you come into like a Christmas movie with different ideas? Yeah, you know, good question. I, I do. I think I come into each. Well, certainly I would say Halloween, Christmas, you know, the couple of big ones. I don't think I've done a Thanksgiving movie yet, but, there's but still yeah, time. Halloween, who knows? <laughs> Halloween and Christmas, though, kind of, you know, evoke those things, don't they? Like Christmas is sort of, you know, sleigh bells and Christmas carols. And so I guess similarly with Halloween, um, Halloween is, you know, witchy, witchy stuff and uh, scary fun. So, yeah, coming into the, a Christmas movie, it sort of, I think, goes with the territory that, at least in my mind, that, you know, one has to get into sleigh bells and Christmas carols and and fun in the snow, you know, and Santa Claus. So, yeah, I think I think coming into it, I did have those sort of musings of being a kid again and what that means for Christmas. And I rewatched Elf last night. Uh, I wanted to pay more attention to the oh, film. Cool. So something like... Um, a stroll with Buddy, just listening to it, paying more attention to it. It was kind of reminiscent of something I might hear in the the Nutcracker. We we used a lot of fun instruments. Of course, we did a lot of vocal things, and we did whistling and. You know, we just had, I just had a lot of fun. I, the idea that John had was just be as kind of creative and quirky as you want to be, and yet, you know, retain all the emotion that we know that the end of the movie sort of evokes a lot of that. So it was really fun. We, we had a grab bag of instruments, and um, I was influenced by a lot of that stuff, but not Nutcracker being one of them, and just a whole bunch of Christmas carols, you know? That was that was kind of, those were my main influences, really. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with film score composer John Debney about the 20th anniversary of the holiday favorite, Elf. You referenced John Favreau, the director of Elf, and then that ended up being an enduring artistic partnership with the the two of you for a number of films. Yeah, that's been a great joy of my life. You know, when you can work with a director more than once and you develop sort of a friendship and a a relationship, it's truly one of the most fun things because, you know, you develop a shorthand with them, you know, if you're lucky. And I've done that with John and we've, God, we've worked on four or five things together, and they've all been super fun. And Jungle Jungle Book being the last one, um, and they're all different, which is really fun. I've done a space adventure with John. I've done Jungle Book. I've done Elf. Um, it's just been really, really a gratifying and, and rewarding relationship with with him. And he's just, as we know now, he's just a brilliant director and a great guy. So it's been really fun. This is going to air later, but we're talking on the exact anniversary of, of Elf right. opening. You work on so many films. You as a composer, I don't know, do you get a sense of if a project is going to resonate with audiences? I know you're you're proud of all your work, but you can probably maybe tell which films are going to like really pop. Did you get a sense about Elf? You know, it, it's sometimes you 
I'm always I, I'm always wrong, by the way, Gary. It's so funny. <laughs> Sometimes I think the ones that are going to really resonate don't always, and some of the others that you don't you don't even have a clue about. And this was one of those where I knew it was super funny and it was clever, and it was I love the heart of the movie, the emotion of the movie. But I yeah, I don't think any of us had any idea that it would become what it's become it was successful when it came out which was really really incredible i know that if john were on the phone with us he'd probably say well that sort of catapulted him on his career but yeah else i didn't i didn't quite have a, a hunch about it even though you know it came out of the box very successful and then it just sort of over the years has grown into what it's become and it's really in my mind, it's become the holiday movie for, you know, I would say your generation or, you know, my kids' generation. Right. And that's really, really cool and really gratifying. And I get I get such a kick out of watching it every year, you know, now with my grandkids, which is really fun. So, yeah, it didn't have a real hunch about how it would do, but blew all of our socks off when it came out. So here we are uh, 20 years later, and now uh, this special Project Elfin concert is taking place all over the, the country. What was your reaction when the opportunity for Elfin concert came about? Well, um, you know, I am so happy about all of this. Of, of course, you can imagine. I've, I've been lobbying for doing Elf Live for many, many, many years. And we, you know, finally found... The partner in Cine Concerts, uh, they're great. Lo and behold, last year, my wife and I did a number of the, these concerts around the country. And it's the closest thing Gary Oliver come to being a rock star because, <laughs> you know, I come out on stage for these concerts and people go crazy because they love the movie and thankfully love the music, I guess. And it's super fun. So, to have sort of wished for this for so long and lobbied for it, I couldn't be more happy. Uh, just to see the joy that the movie and the music brings to the audiences is, is just, it's phenomenal. And I'm the luckiest guy in the world to be able to experience that, to be on stage on, for some of these concerts and conduct them. And it's just a dream come true. What can I say? It's a dream come true. <laughs> You conduct some of these that are presented? I do. I do as many as I can. Unfortunately, I'm not able to do all of them. But I'm doing uh, L.A., which will be great. This year, I've just got kind of busy around this time frame. So I won't be able to make many of them in person. But nonetheless, you've got some great uh, conductors doing them all across the country. Elfin Concert will be taking place here in the Chicago area once at the Historic Auditorium Theater on Saturday, November 25th, and then uh, the next night at the Rosemont Theater in nearby Rosemont. Have you ever got to spend much time in Chicago? You know, I've only been there once, but I loved it. I was there <laughs> many years ago. Believe it or not, it was there so long ago. I was doing a, a, a documentary on Michael Jordan, of all things, and called MJ to the Max, I think it was called. And so, you know, that's a, that was a long time ago, you can imagine. But I loved it when I went there with some great restaurants and so beautiful the city. And I'd like to go back for sure. Yeah, you got to come back. But I did. Yeah, I looked at your filmography and that, the Michael Jordan documentary caught my eye right away. So I was like, I wonder if he, he came to Chicago to work on that. I did. It was really, really fun. I was with um, the Stern family 
it was really, really cool. You can imagine the tour they gave me was awesome. Looking forward to, to seeing Elf in concert with the power of a, an orchestra. Big fan of the, the film and your work. John, thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Uh, that's great, Gary. Well, I can't wait for you to see it. Can't wait for your audience to um, enjoy it. And, you know, a lot of a lot of the audience members dress up. So if you feel like dressing up like an elf, Gary, I <laughs> invite you to do that. <laughs> That's John Debney. He composed the score to the film Elf. The holiday classic is being presented with a live orchestra around the country over the next month and a half. Elf in Concert will be at the Auditorium Theater in Chicago on Saturday, November 25th, and the next night at the Rosemont Theater in Rosemont. You can find more information at elfinconcert.com. I'm Buddy the Elf. <laughs> you look hilarious. Who sent you? Papa Elf. Papa Elf? Mm -hmm. From the North Pole. From the North Pole? Yes. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.